And welcome to episode six of our special mini-series with the Nessa Group. And let's just start this off. Jim Huerta, how are you doing? I'm wonderful. Enjoying the company, enjoying the conversation. Thank you, sir. Barry Kolovzan, how's it going? Going very, very nice, and we're very excited at the movements that we're, we're making to go forward again. All right. I, I only like going forward, never backwards, but I practice law. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Will Jakes is with us. How are you doing, yeah, Will? Very good to be here. Hello <laughs> to our listening audience. <laughs> Justin, how's it going? Doing great. Compliments on that joke. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Justin Rupati over there, Scott Mattenar. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing well. Thank you. And since you and I are attorneys, what firm are you with? I'm with Harrington, Akko, and Monk. And I'm managing partner of Verna Law as well. So uh, let's start here. Scott, this came. Th- this situation came from you. Uh, an entrepreneur, entrepreneur had a great idea. Uh, some friends worked on source code uh, for the, with this entrepreneur to launch an app. Uh, there were some issues there. And uh, I believe they came to you with already $2 million raised. And with unaccredited investors in there. So, yeah. so, so that $2 million came from unaccredited investors? Not all of it, but some of it, yes. So, all right, let's start here. What's the difference between an accredited third party and an unaccredited third party? So under the securities laws, to be accredited, you need to have income individually of $200,000 per year or with your spouse of $300,000 per year or have net assets excluding your home value of over a million dollars. And so it's when you're raising money, it's a lot easier because you don't have to provide the amount of information for accredited investors that you would for unaccredited. So when we raise money, we always want to do it with accredited investors. And if you don't meet the security laws, exceptions and rules relating to that, what happens is your investors can rescind their investment at any time. So you could be running a company for four years and someone finds out that you didn't meet the exemptions you need under the securities laws, And they could say, I want my money back, and you have to give them your money back. So it becomes a much bigger problem than just, oh, I forgot to give them financials, or I forgot to give them this, or, you know, other information. So that's the first thing. And, and, you know, every sort of company, when you're dealing with venture capitalists and angel investors, they're always going to want to deal with accredited investors. It makes it simpler. So is that what the definition of bad securities exemptions are, is the ability to take that money back? Effectively, if you have a bad offering, yes, it would be rescission of the offering. So basically, if somebody's not accredited, they could take the money back. And if you said a company is working uh, for four years and maybe they're burning through capital and they don't have that. (laughs) It's a problem, yes. 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 (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's ways to fix it, but the best way to fix it is just to make an offering from the get-go that includes only accredited investors. And it also avoids a lot of other issues, so. So, so this group of people came to you. Did they have any signed agreements within themselves? No, but we, we're re, we're re, um, we're going back in time and putting all the agreements in sure. place. So, um, what, what, so what you have to look at is obviously you're re, reconstituting the company. It becomes a bigger issue because obviously you start to look at what evaluations how much money has people put in, what, what is the equity split of the business, 
what have people contributed to the company in terms of, in your world, IP, sure. cash, other things, whether there's notes that have been put in place and whether this is considered debt or equity, a whole lot of issues to go through. Right. So let's talk about some of the, the uh, IP issues. Will, if if there's if there's a patent here in the software, and and I and let's get over the hump of the difficulty of getting an algorithmic patent involving the software. But if there's something patentable here, where, where would the ownership lie, especially without an agreement? It lies with the inventors in the U.S. Right, and I, and now on the copyright issues as well. It's, if there's no work for hire agreement, it it vests with the author. And everybody else who's involved would totally uh, have no rights whatsoever. I get calls from people like Scott all the time where <laughs> that hasn't been determined up front. And now there's an argument during the formation of the company as to who owns what. Right. Um, if there are any, in a situation like this, if there are any trade secrets whatsoever, they're probably not going to be deemed secrets at some point because there's no confidentiality agreement in there as well. So so without an agreement, no confidentiality. Right. Um, chances are, as well, I'm assuming that the information probably wasn't kept behind multiple passwords or, or systems like that as well. So the whole trade secret you know, idea kind of would fail completely with a company like that. Yep. All the IP has effectively been retained by the original people. The company doesn't own it. And what we call that is the tail wagging the dog. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> it becomes a big problem because the inventors, if you go to them now and say, hey, can you assign over the IP? We're raising money. Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. Or pay me, pay me a lot of money to do so. And so it becomes, it becomes an ongoing sort of you know, problem from the get-go. So, so we can uh, end questions of IP ownership in uh, any agreement to form the company, whether it's the articles of organization or, or whatever it might no, be. No, we would use people like you and Will okay. to prepare the work for hire and assignment, proprietary assignment agreements with NDAs involved so that at least the initial software and or other IP is assigned over to the company if you're issuing equity in exchange for that, we'll put in the appropriate documents on the equity side, which would be things like restrictions on transfer, drag-along rights, lock-up rights, um, anything you'd sort of see um, that would prevent people from selling their equity. You might discuss vesting over time because if you expect the inventor to continue to work for the business, you may not want to issue all of the equity up front because what tends to happen is they stop working over some period of time and then you end up fighting over um, the equity that you've now granted them. L let's talk about that from uh, a, a human standpoint, Jim. And uh, a, lot of in a lot of inventors create something, a business gets started, right, and, and at some point it might not be vested, but they're tired of working in the business and because they're tinkerers, because they're inventors, because they're creative type people, they want to go to the next thing. How, what are some of the human ways, Jim, that you would advise a company to handle that particular situation? And we'll go back to Scott for, for some of the legal thoughts on that. If I understand your question correctly, it's, it's, it's this whole idea of, of the focus that they're going to put on this particular product or 
this endeavor that they're getting tired of? Is that what we're... Well, yes, absolutely, because a lot of inventors get tired. Um, You know, uh, there's a point you encourage that kind of behavior if you see that their mind's heading in the same direction and they're becoming byproducts to what their original started with because that's a way to keep, in my mind, keep someone focused on where their mindset is and why they invented it in the first place. But usually what I, what I do from a human perspective, if in fact the company or the people can afford it or they have someone in their group that can do it, I like a dedication of an individual that I know is going to stay grounded to that particular task as opposed to unheaving it and moving on to the next thing. And now you have uh, 12 months, 15 months of no progress. So I, I kind of like the idea of uh, creating some kind of way that there is some handoff where you don't dis- kind of discourage yourself or just walk away from the project. Right. If its value is worth it. So basically, um, if, if I'm using a carrot stick analogy, what you're trying to say is keep a carrot out there for the inventor to stick around or maybe go out gracefully, slowly, so that we don't have we don't have some kind of some yeah, kind I, of cutoff. I, I think the carrot's a good thing. I I, I think the, the the key is to let's say you you you've been with this inventor for a while and you know the aptitude and the way their mind works and uh, how possessive they are of what they come up with. You have to in the business keep looking at what they have in front of you and keep thinking about things that you can create from that main product or what are the things that you can say, you know, I bet if you did this and did this, this might be... What you've done there is that you've kept them within their... where they're happy. They haven't walked away from the main product, yet you're making them and pointing out to them that there's other things that can come from that main product. You're trying to keep them with some kind of interest. It's like having having a four-year-old kid and trying to keep him <laughs> occupied, okay? You, you don't, if you see the value, you can't let this guy walk away because he truly is or she is the person who knows what's going on. Justin, I, I know that you have experience with this particular situation, you know, with, with that founder who's like getting a little tired with, with that company. How do you work with businesses that are, are beginning to, to, to see that inventor fade away? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a big problem, not only for inventors, but all co-founders of a business. One thing I've noticed today, because today it is much easier to start a business or to try to start a business than it has been 15, 10 years ago. Um, I see a lot of founders not a part of just one project anymore, but dabbling in a lot of different things and kind of, not, not everyone, but I, I see it enough now where they, they're diluting their attention across multiple projects to see which hits. And I think it's very important for any team, even if for a small business that's been established, to have a unified unified vision on what they're looking to accomplish with specified roles and expectations aligned. Um, as, as a business owner, if it was, let's say, a company I founded and I was inviting, inviting others in to participate, I would want to keep them inspired and incentivized, but I'd also want to protect myself. The vesting idea is one way of doing that. Um, there could be, uh, you know, revenue being produced. There could be profit sharing, success metrics. There's a lot of different ways. But as a business owner, you want to protect yourself, but you also want to inspire and incentivize them to continue doing a great job. And I would also say as an inventor, there's big differences between creating products and creating software. Uh, and the way you would look at, look at that is, is completely different. So, so since, you, since you bring up that, that particular topic, uh, how how do you look at a, a company making a product uh, that you can hold in your hand versus software, which is generally intangible? 
it, it's not to be overgeneralized, but a product is something that I think, it, you know, depending on what it is, whether it's a mold, a unique design, is something that's done in a more collapsed period of time. There might be reinventions to it along the way, but with software, it's constant development. Um, the level of software today is you, you typically have your MVP product that you put out, which is a very watered down version to prove um, your value proposition in the market, and then you continue to develop around there. When you are teaming up with an inventor or a software developer, they are very important to your business. If you are a technology company and you try to go forward and even raise money without a technologist on your team, you're going to have a lot of people perking their ears at you. Um, CTOs or people in those positions are very important for technology or software-based companies. Those individuals should be incentivized to participate in the company in both the short term and the long term. And and when five, six people may have raised $2 million, but they don't have any signed agreements, they don't necessarily know how they're working together, it doesn't sound like that particular scenario matches up with your best case scenario. Yeah, it's unfortunately not something that I haven't seen before, and I'm sure you, you obviously you guys have not. Um, you know, there's a personal side to business, so hopefully they can figure it out. It, it could easily get messy if people try to get over greedy, um, but then they're all going to have or trying to get a whole lot of nothing. Um, they need to figure out a way to play together, um, figure out both time served, what the value was that was brought to the table so far and what their expectations are going forward. Um, because the work, any startup, especially within software is heavy lifting and there's always a lot to do. Um, and if you have one individual who's trying to swallow up a lot of equity without, um, w w without being willing to put forth the effort to go forward, they're going to suffocate the company because it's going to prohibit that company from going in and finding the other talent that would be required to continue growing it. All right. Scott, getting, getting back to this um, um, idea of vesting, um, how, what are some of the structures that, that you have used in the past to keep that to keep a structure like this together and to keep those founders in, in a business? So usually you see this in a few different ways, but usually there's a protagonist for the business. So that person has an idea, they bring in other people to work with them and help them develop that idea. And so what you're looking at from the quote, real founders point of view, the protagonist that I just said, is you, they have to figure out how much equity they're willing to give up to keep people, as Justin said, incentivized and, and engaged in the business. What I've seen on more than one occasion where um, sort of the protagonist brings in a quote co-founder and where you're bootstrapping the business and people aren't getting paid salaries and are kind of working through what they have to work through. And this is all in the early stage sort of business world. Um, you know, any of the people who come in to work with the protagonist tend to fall off over some period of time because they're not getting paid and they wanna they wanna get income and they wanna look for other ways to develop their own personal sort of situation in the business world. And so what you're looking to do as the protagonist is one, you can obviously do stock options and give them equity and have that vest over time and you know, the standard vesting of a one-year cliff and 25% is still out there, but people definitely play with that. You can do stock grants or, you know, um, where you're actually granting someone equity up front and that vests over time as well. That, that affords some holding periods and allows them to get better tax treatment on the back end. Um, but 
you're, you're really relying on the vesting and the time value of keeping someone involved in the business to keep them engaged because until you really raise additional money and can pay salaries, people are only going to be incentivized as Justin was referring to through the equity version. Quick Justin, question, Scott. Ahead. Thank you. Um, is there a difference, and if so, what is the difference between a stock grant and a purchase warrant? A purchase, a purchase warrant. A warrant to purchase assets of the company. Are they one and the same? Because no, I've seen well, a warrant is actually just a contract or an option to buy equity in the business on a going forward basis. Stock option is the same thing. Typically, when you talk about employees and consultants and people who are involved in the business and providing services, you're talking about stock options. Typically, warrants are issued to third parties. In you know, in years past, they um, companies would sometimes issue units consisting of stock and warrants together when um, investors bought a unit, so they would have the warrants as well. Um, but a warrant is typically not used in connection with actually financing the business or issuing equity to employees and consultants and advisors. Thank you. Um, I also think it's important for the audience to know what a cliff is. It was something I was going to bring up. You beat me to it. Do you want to explain the cliff and the purpose behind it? So a cliff is a period of time. Again, it's usually one year, but um, an employee or a consultant needs to provide services on an ongoing basis to the company for at least that one year to vest their initial tranche. And, and the reason why you have the cliff is because of what we're talking about here is um, employees, consultants get tired, bored, need to move on with their lives and leave before the end of the year. So you're not actually granting someone equity for not fulfilling their obligations and, and moral sort of imperatives that they've agreed to with the company. I like to think about that as a dating peer before getting married. <laughs> every, bus every business partner should date before they get married. Yeah, and and right. I actually think that's, that's a very important point that, that Justin has brought up. Like if five guys, you know, Scott, if these five guys, uh, I mean, like our old college friends, I mean, the chances are they might be able to work well together. But if they're old friends, a friendship and a business relationship are radically different. Yeah. 100%. 100%. <laughs> I guess it depends on whether or not you're falling off the cliff or if you're moving over a bridge, huh? <laughs> <laughs> or being pushed off the cliff. <laughs> Barry, let, in our previous episode, we were uh, talking about a, a, a company that had been around for a while, whereas in this episode, we're talking about companies, for the most part, that, that are new. Uh, but... When you see a company that is long-term, 15 years, and the founders, you know, are the founders excited? How do you keep them excited if they're coming to you for business advice? Well, one of the things when I had conversations with them, I was very, very reserved. M meaning, meaning like they're kind of tired of this business, like, gee, this yes. isn't the way we thought it would go? Uh, I think they were ready to throw up their hands and go out of business. And retire. Gotcha. Maybe. Gotcha. Or maybe they just found another business. They want to sell this one <laughs> and they want to move into a, a more profitable business. Well, Because but when you do it the first time and you set it up, you're in there, you say, I've been here. I, I would like to sell it 
and then do another company. You know, there are people that do that to build their their companies. Sure. I I think I think one of the thoughts here that 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 we have that we have all mentioned is that we are thinking positively about you know, group of five people have already been able to raise $2 million and they have some source code, but they don't have an app that works yet. Um, you know, putting my legal hat on, putting my IP legal hat on, I sit here and I'm like, well, what if there's litigation? <laughs> I mean, what if somebody isn't, what if they, they go and they file some documentation, but maybe the copyright's not filed properly. Maybe the patent, you know, only has the inventor, doesn't have an assignee on it. Uh, you, you know, and what happens if there's litigation? Then you wonder who the plaintiff is. And then, and then after that, if there might be a recovery, it's not, you know, going to the business properly. It, you know, I look at, at issues like that and, and it just kind of actually freaks me out more than <laughs> trying to think positively. But one good thing I like is that we've thought positively about this particular situation to make sure that the business is successful in the long run. So, so Scott, I want to say thank you for bringing this particular situation here. And if does anybody else have any closing thoughts on this particular? Business? I'll add to what Barry was saying before. Go ahead. I think, especially when you look at either a startup or a more established business, and the founder themselves is personally, what do they want out of this business? Sometimes people are very content with running a smaller business that might be doing a couple of hundred thousand to low millions a year. Some want to blow it out of the water and try to get a hundred million dollar valuation. Um, it's very important to understand personally what your client or your partner's goals are. The long-term um, goals. The long-term, short-term and long-term goals. Just very quickly, I, I have a client in California um, in the essential oils business. He grew the business to $3 million, has, and he'll self-proclaimed limited understanding of business. He is a herbologist, acupuncturist, student of Eastern medicine. He's been able to embed that in the mission of his company and reach clients, but from a business point of view, even with reaching $3 million, um, they lost money the last two years. And he was at a point where he was talking with me about raising money for his company, diagnosing the problems, which are marketing and technology with no wholesale presence uh, in the market. Um, and he started at the same time as two industry giants, doTERRA and Young Living, both of which are billion-dollar clients. Yeah. Different business models, they're multi-level marketing. But but essentially selling similar products with now, you know, a much greater profit line. Exactly. And he, he has a higher quality product with even okay. a higher profit margin. Okay. Um, but in talking with him and learning what he wants to do is he wants to be a teacher. He wants to be an educator. He does not want to run a business. So um, the, the strategy we went forward with was to find uh, an acquisition, to look for an acquisition, to sell 90% of the company keep him in at a carried interest to continue being an educator, creating content and product development, but let a better company, a more experienced company run the day-to-day -day and scale the business. You know, when you said that, that he wanted to be an educator, the first, pop, first thought that popped in my mind was content, video. I mean, that just sounds like exactly what he wants to do. He, he is infectious, so is his wife. They can be phenomenal brand ambassadors for the business, and that's how we position them. I mean, they have a following over 261,000 emails of people who tune in for their content on how to use their products and learn about natural, organic home remedies. It's pretty inspiring. It's just now the business instruments and processes and methodologies need to get put in place, and they've been missing for a while. Justin. So, Justin, why, why did they sell it versus going out and hiring a CEO who could 
mm-hmm. potentially run the business? Great question. We explored that. Yeah. We actually interviewed a CEO who lived 45 minutes from the facility who has direct industry experience growing similar businesses from low millions to 30 million. Uh, we talked about bringing them in. There's a large cash flow issue within the business. Um, raising money that would be necessary would, uh, uh, would necessitate giving up a large chunk of equity within the company. And his interest is not owning or running the company anymore. We've had a lot of lengthy, lengthy discussions with him. He's ready and willing at the point of his life to kind of turn this over to someone else. Uh, now, part of this acquisition process, and we're going to, through that right now, it's a deal I should actually talk to you about, um, because there's a lot of latent value in this business. There's tremendous opportunity. His current factory can scale to $30 million with limited capital expenditures, um, which is exciting. We just have to position him where his talents are best served, and he's fully aware of that, which is great for a client because you get a lot of clients who understand they have a problem but don't want to change. No, it's, he's very enlightened in that sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's, that's a fantastic story to end this episode on. Jim, as oh, always. As always. Uh, how you, can everybody find the Nessa Group If you want to know online. more about us and what we're all about, go to www.thenessagroup.com. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon with our next episode.